you want to be capable of non-violence, you have to understand your violent capacities, mm -hmm. right? And get in right relationship with them. That is what it means to truly be non-violent. To truly be non-violent doesn't mean you try to like suppress your violence because it will come out in unconscious ways. And I think that's what we're seeing with the secular humanists slash woke. Yeah. Worlds. They're like trying to get rid of darkness, and then their darkness ends up coming out in unconscious ways. Hey guys, so before we get started with this week's podcast, I want to remind you that we have our retreats for sale this year. So we do have one of our retreats sold out, but we still have spots for two of our retreats. And if you love the content that we've been putting out with the Evolve Move Play podcast, and you want to really understand in your body what it's like to put together deep movement practice with mindfulness with nature connection and with community you owe it to yourself to jump on a call and see if these events are right for you so you can jump on the link in my bio and i look forward to seeing you on the call chloe it's been a long time welcome back to the evolve move play podcast thank you rafe thank you so much for having me yeah i've been anticipating this conversation for like a year it's been a year since last time we uh we actually did a podcast together we've had a few chances to chat since then um there's a that first conversation, I wanted to connect on some of the broader ideas that we share in common, some of those things. Um, but one of the reasons I reached out to you originally is because I feel like the communities that I'm in, the movement community in particular, really need to hear your message because there has been a big pickup of the kind of social justice, um, critical theory approach to mm. diversity equity and inclusion concepts mm. and so i wanted to make this conversation more specifically about what's happening there why it's happening and how we can have a more sophisticated and nuanced conversation about it and okay. how we can do it better <laughs> because it doesn't feel like it's being done very well right now yeah um, I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation i'm very curious about how you see the critical theory uh sort of mentality informing the movement world yeah yeah well let's come back to that um okay. let's start with i think you know last time we didn't do a lot to introduce you to the audience i think i probably did a a, a formal introduction before you came on but i think it'd be useful to just have you break down your background and why you're kind of working in this area mm. so i i think it's very interesting you know we were talking online or offline before we put turn the camera or turn the the recording on about how you're working specifically with like healing the gap between the Jewish people and the black people in a specific organization. And, you know, that's kind of interesting for you because you had this background uh, religiously of growing up in a, in a Christian household that had a very specifically kind of Jewish orientation. So why don't we start there and how that evolved into the activism you did in college and then how that kind of informed your worldview and how you got into the theory of enchantment. Sure. So I grew up in New Orleans, born and raised in New Orleans, uh, in a Christian family that didn't observe any mainstream Christian uh, festivals, holidays like Christmas or Easter, mm -hmm. but but celebrated all Jewish festivals like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, kept the Sabbath day, went to church on Saturday instead of Sunday with the idea that the original uh, founders of Christianity were observing Christianity in this particular way. Mm -hmm. And with the idea that it wasn't until the rise of the Roman Catholic church that certain festivals started getting changed and swapped out 
um, into new festivals. That's broadly speaking how I grew up. And that did two things that shaped my understanding of the world and interests in the world. Number one, it gave me an affinity for Jewish culture, the Jewish community in general, and, and you know, consequently an aversion to anti-Semitism. And it also made me incredibly curious about the world. Because, for example, you know, on Christmas morning, I didn't spend my Christmas mornings under a tree unwrapping presents. Yeah. I spent my Christmas mornings in the living room with my parents talking about Emperor Constantine, literally reading over his historical documents about how Emperor Constantine changed different uh, dates and times and things of that nature. So it gave mm -hmm. me a sense of history and place outside my immediate locale. Yeah. Um, and, and it gave me a sense of time uh, as well. And so uh, in high school, I started getting more interested in Zionism, the movement to reestablish the state of Israel. Uh, I started reading books by Leon Uris, uh, who was a really famous like writer about this, a fictional writer about this during the 20th century, I'd say. Uh, and then in college, I majored in international studies with a concentration in conflict and diplomacy and had an Israel club on campus called Allies of Israel, uh, where we, me and my friends brought in like pro-Israel speakers to come speak and, uh, you know, talk about, give the Israeli perspective vis-a-vis um, -vis the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. At some point, though, I started realizing that the strictly political, polemical approach to solving conflict was flawed. Our friend uh, John Verveke would say that it was based based in uh, adversarial processing yeah. instead of opponent processing. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't able to capture what we were trying to hopefully and ultimately do and be in service of, which was like a path to peace. Yeah. And it was only until I discovered Israeli literature, uh, contemporary Israeli literature, written by people like Amos Oz, that were able to capture the imperfections of Israeli society, the flaws of Israeli society, in a tender, vulnerable, compassionate way, um, and of you know Palestinian society as well, that I was able to start shifting from a more political way of thinking or adversarial way of thinking to a more opponent processing compassionate way of thinking yeah so this was around the time that i graduated from college and after that i moved to new york where i got a job at the wall street journal mm -hmm. i was still interested by this question of how to combat anti-semitism in a in a way that's sustainable yeah. and the the ideas that i came up with were how do you really questions or how do you actually teach people how to love in general mm -hmm. um, instead of asking how do you combat conflict how do you teach people how to love and then I started to study well what are the things that people are already in love with and then I started to study pop culture because pop culture shows you what you gravitate towards as a society as a zeitgeist so mm -hmm. I started studying things like Nike and Disney and uh, you know, Apple, all these cultural artifacts, really, that have religious like devotion from from many of its fans, so to speak. Yeah. And I started to search and search for patterns. I started to search for common denominators that these brands 
stories that these brands were telling over and over again that got us to sort of like really commit to these brands. And the stories that they were telling were stories of, you know, some imperfect, flawed being has to go through a series of obstacles and, and comes out of those series of ob- obstacles renewed, uh, connected to their higher self, uh, way more capable of achieving their higher potential. And this seemed to be the kind of uh, pattern that a lot of these stories were tapping into, a lot of these brands were tapping into. And so I was like, oh, this is a phenomenon. This is like, this is happening enough times that it's a phenomenon. And I decided to call that phenomenon enchantment. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I called it enchanting was because when I think of enchantment, or two reasons, when I think of enchantment, I think of this sort of like gradual opening up of oneself to oneself and to the world, which I think mm-hmm. is the seed that is necessary for love. If I yeah. want to learn how to love others, mm-hmm. I really have to learn how to love myself and to to be in right relationship with all the parts of myself. And so there's this like, you know, the way a flower sort of opens up is is how I would describe um enchantment. It's like a a a type of it's not enlightenment, right? It's not like blinding light yeah. uh being like sh- like shine down on someone. It's this delicate interplay between light and dark. Um and that's what that's what Israeli fiction and Israeli literature was doing it was showing me the light and the dark of israeli society mm-hmm. and giving me the capacity to hold it all uh, as opposed to the more polemical approach which was more to deny the darkness and present israel as this sort mm-hmm. of absolutely perfect you know which i can't relate to because i'm not perfect and no one else can relate to it either um that's the first reason why i called it enchantment the second reason why i called it enchantment was because uh, Guy Kawasaki, I, I came across this book by Guy Kawasaki, who wrote a book called Enchantment, um, who talked about, uh, he was he was uh, Apple's former marketing director. So he talked about how Steve Jobs uh, believed in this concept of enchantment, called it the process by which you delight someone. And again, there's that interplay of light there, um, where you delight someone with a the product, with an idea, with a you know another human being, something, you know when I think of delight, I think of a kind of opening up, like something's yeah. opening, uh, and it, it's a it's a kind of expansiveness that is coming from within, um, and you know enchantment is obviously also a central theme in Disney, um, which is which which was another brand I was studying at the time, so that's why I like oh, this phenomenon is enchanting. It's And then I was like, oh, it's enchantment. So after that, I wrote a paper on this at the journal. Um, and after that, I started to take this idea, uh, which basically said, if you want to teach people how to love, you have to give people a process by which to open themselves up, mm. both to themselves and to the, to the world around them, so that love can kind of come in. So I took that idea and I started to refine it for the next two years. And I created like these three rules or principles. And the principles are treat people, you know, like human beings, not political abstractions, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, and try to root everything you do in love and compassion. 
and I was lecturing on this in many places. Uh, this is between 2016 and 2018. Yeah. And then I was working for a nonprofit at the time, but that was essentially like, like a, just like a, a catalyst through which I could refine my ideas. And then I went off on my own and created Theory of Enchantment, you know, like LLC. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really know what to do with it. At the time, I just had this idea and the three principles. And I reached out to people. I asked them for their advice. And some people said, oh, uh, why don't you think about creating a course based upon these three principles? So that's what I set out to do. I created a course heavily, heavily. Uh, centered around pop culture anchors mm -hmm. because it was pop culture that enabled me to see this pattern in the first place and so i created a course and it was all about self-discovery and um uh really confronting the self interrogating the self learning to discern you know when you're projecting things uh out onto people versus when you're speaking from your your centered sense of self uh, and I use different pop culture references to help guide people on that journey. So like, you know, Jay-Z talking about how he realized that when someone was being threatening towards him, it was actually because that person was scared. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, talking about the F Disney film Inside Out, which is about what's happening internally in a person that gives rise to our our, the facades that we project uh stoicism marcus aurelius you know a great psychotechnology that help people yeah. deal with with uh alienation can is is elements of that is seen in like disney's the lion king mm -hmm. so i built out this and at the time it was i was actually wanting to give the curriculum to high schools uh as a kind of social emotional learning okay uh program and i should say it also included you know teachings by dr king and maya angelou and james baldwin because all these people also had this capacity to to ask what was going on within the interior of a human being that is causing them to produce let's say bigotry or prejudice etc yeah. um so I wanted to sell it as a curriculum to high schools and uh, high schools are bureaucratic. So that uh, proved to be very, very difficult. <laughs> this was in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very difficult. And, but I was, you know, I was trying, I was getting talks here and there, but I wasn't, you know, getting the sale, so to speak. And mm -hmm. then in 2020, 2020, yeah. <laughs> Remember that year, that that wonderful year that descended upon all of us. Uh, 2020 uh, emerged and all of a sudden you have incredible amount of scarcity, both, you know, uh, materially in the form of COVID-19, but also psychologically people are feeling isolated, lack of belonging, etc. You have what I would call the twin pillar of a rising interest in uh overcoming racial injustice let's say with the rise of with the with the murder of george floyd the rise of black lives matter the protests in the streets all of these things these are happening at the same time and feeding off of each other and with this interest in race uh there comes along with it all of a sudden an interest in theory of enchantment and it was it was fascinating because i didn't initially 
market it as a diversity and inclusion training. It was other people, particularly people at other companies who were being asked to sit in workshops that were of a different, (laughs) let's say, approach uh, to combating racism. They were the people who were saying to me, Chloe, this is an anti-racism course. Mm. Um, And indeed it is because it teaches you ultimately how to love. I mean, it truly is an anti-racism course. Um, it just so happens that the ultimate, ultimate like objective of it is to teach people how to love. And so it's so like as a byproduct, it naturally teaches you how to fight against racism. So that's like the 360. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> overview. That's great to, to hear that story. And it was particularly interesting to kind of like having that frame of, you know, uh, where you started with your religious upbringing um, yeah. and you know, I could kind of imagine this sense of like, you had a a deep care for an interest in the the Middle East conflict and anti-Semitism. And how do you overcome these really deeply entrenched antipathies between different ethnic groups, right? Yeah. And that led you down the path of trying to figure out what does it mean to to help people actually fall in love with each other? Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that obviously has um application as sort of racial antipathy just explodes really in the last yeah. uh you know five years or so in this country. So yeah, that was that was very interesting. There's a couple of things that you said that I really liked. One was you you kept pointing to this metaphor of like a flower mm-hmm. that's opening out. And I was recently with John Verveke at uh like a wisdom conference and there was another guy there, Steve Marsh, and he he was talking about the idea that self-development um, is better thought of as an unfolding process than a mm. developmental process or a um, or like a constructive process. You don't want to necessarily construct your character because that can be very artificial. Mm. What you want to do is kind of remove the negative constraints and allow that flower to come forth. And so I think that's a beautiful analogy to think about what we're trying to achieve. And then the second thing that you, you flipped over was this... I, I can't, I can't precisely pick up exactly what you're saying, but it kept reminding me of, of John Ravicki's language of reciprocal narrowing versus mm. reciprocal opening, right? Yeah. That what you're seeking in training people is to help them learn to reciprocally open within themselves to the world mm. and in conflict management to reciprocally opening to each other. And in some sense, you know, You've said that, that that has to start in the self. You have to be reciprocally opening to the aspects of the self before you can reciprocally open to the other. And that a lot of these, um, this sort of tendency to bite onto racial antipathy or other types of antipathy is actually about a, a kind of reciprocally narrowing thing within the self. Does that language resonate for you? Yes, I love the uh, framework of reciprocal narrowing versus reciprocal opening, especially because with racial antipathy, what is happening in the background is a lot of fear of the other. And I think it's fear in general that results often in that kind of reciprocal narrowing. Certainly, paranoia uh, is is an outcome of that kind of fear. So, yeah, I, I really... Uh, that framework really resonates with me. 
I've, I've been reading uh, Morris Berman's book, The Reenchantment of the Earth, which I think I mentioned mm. to you before, but I think you, you might have. Beautiful title. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he talks about the process of schismogenesis, right? Of how like groups will break apart because there's yeah. types of conflict that aren't, that, that you're not um, able to deal well. And he analogizes this actually to what happens with an addiction. Addiction, and, and that of course comes back to that. Addiction is a reciprocally narrowing process where you, you, um, you, all of your behavior sort of falls down the well of feeding this one aspect, alcohol addiction, pornography, video games, whatever it is, right? You, you start cutting off all these pieces of yourself in order to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. It's like, oh, I'm an honest person, but I need uh, heroin. So maybe I'm going to steal from my mom. And now you're letting go of, of your commitment to honesty. And those are all reciprocally narrowing. Um, and I feel in some sense, like we've become, I think that we've become addicted to outrage, right? Mm -hmm. We've become addicted to polarization. And I think it, and it I'm not sure the relationship between the sort of general outrage across the political spectrum and the specific outrage around race that's happening right now, mm -hmm. but it feels like they're interrelated and they're not necessarily exactly the same, but mm -hmm. there is this, there is this sense of an addiction to that. And mm -hmm. I've been thinking about this because, well, the question I wanted to ask you is, why has race become so salient in the American political landscape within the last five years? Like, mm. okay, I'll stop there. I'll let you. <laughs> That's a them. big question. Uh, like, like why race and not class, for example? Yeah. Um, you can see like the race and gender or race mm -hmm. and sex seem to kind of go in waves too. Right was like mm -hmm. me too was big and then and then black lives matter sort of took the air in the space now it feels like trans issues are maybe are are taking more of the air in the space right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but um i don't know what point i was going to make but but race <laughs> has become super salient in a yeah. way that is surprising and like one of the things like i saw you or i was listening to a podcast you did with christopher rufo uh, this mm -hmm. morning mm -hmm. and i think christopher rufo does some really important research and i'm also kind of skeptical of his presence on the political spectrum i feel the same way about james Lindsay, who i know you've had both some connections with and some, and some, some beef, conflict yeah. with, <laughs> some beef with whereas uh, i think that like he's doing really great research in in untangling yeah. the kind of intellectual roots of these things but there's a way in which i feel like it's um it's myopic right he's mm -hmm. focusing on one strain of a multi-causal problem to the mm -hmm. point where it's somewhat distorting and one of the things that i really like about your work is i think that you're pointing to strains that i don't see other people pointing to a lot of the emotional layer a lot of the implicit layer a lot of the like spiritual and virtue layers that mm -hmm. don't seem to be part of the conversation. Yeah. So, go ahead. <laughs> I'm not sure I know why race has become so salient in the past five years. Mm -hmm. I, like, why race specifically? I could guess that, that the African-American community has become a kind of talisman 
in mm. the in the you know eyes of many actually i would i could argue both on the left and the right yeah the african-american community has become a kind of you know uh mm. talisman um probably in part because as americans we you know we are we do find ourselves wanting to grapple with our quote-unquote original sin yeah. slavery this is this is something that has never fully been i would say consciously grappled with as a nation um and i think that the pent-up frustrations that were in part caused by the isolation and the sense of alienation of covid um sort of it just like caught fire i thought like all the factors that could possibly be in place were in place in 2020 you have people who are super super isolated and alienated and and feeling a, a lot a loss of belonging you have other scarcity issues that are sort of unseen because no one's seeing each other it's not transparent that are happening in different homes across the nation because of that alienation uh, an easy uh example is like you know schools shutting down and kids being forced to you know go to english on zoom and let's say a home with a single mom and you know not enough resources to actually deal with that is present so you have scarcities like micro scarcities like that happening you have social media right yeah. where talk about salience right where we we are able to see Things like the murder of George Floyd on camera, but like multiple, multiple times a day going viral. Everyone can see it. It's being broadcasted to everyone at such a fast rate. And people are responding to it immediately. Also, vis-a-vis -vis social media or yeah. via social media. And so and emotions are, are high. Uh, platform like Twitter is highly incentivized towards adversarial processing. Um, and yeah, so I think you have all these different micro and macro factors that spun up in 2020 yeah. and just like sort of a flash in the pan moment. But I don't think I'd be curious to see how I'd be curious to see like the staying power of it. <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, obviously it's sometimes I can be a little maybe too hopeful because I'm operating from where I'm operating yeah. and, and I'm less, I'm less um, aware of like the day-to-day -day ways in which other people are actually still dealing with like the critical race theory sort of mm -hmm. uh, approaches or lenses being implemented in their in their environments in their communities so i'm yeah. sort of separated from it a little bit yeah um so but i don't think it was predictable though yeah um i think there's a there's an element of there's there's stochastic elements or random elements right like mm -hmm. um i actually think like the death of tumblr mm -hmm. is like a weirdly important moment in deranging the entire political dialogue well like i've been around the internet long enough that i can kind of like track some of these trends mentally so a lot of the dialogue that you see now this mm -hmm. really hyper emotional um 
angry grievance driven dialogue. I remember that being big on live journal in the mid aughts, mm. right? Or late aughts. And then it moved to Tumblr and Tumblr became the place where it was all crazy. Mm. And then uh, Tumblr banned pornography, which was what was driving a lot of people to Tumblr. And then essentially somehow like the site just really got smaller and everybody fled and they ended up on Twitter and Facebook. And then it was like that, that stuff Uh. permeated everything. But, um, so I think that's, that's a trigger, right? It's like, it's just these random things or, or the algorithm deciding that this is what's going to, to drive clicks right now. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think that there's, I think there's one of the things that I was thinking about is, let me back up for a second. If we, you know, someone might be listening to this saying, well, obviously race is important right now. Black men are getting shot on the street, right? Like it's been, you know, 450 years and we still haven't solved the problem of race in America. And they might think that, you know, uh, like things haven't gotten better. And I think that a lot of times the the information about how things have gotten better isn't actually accessible to people. So, yeah. you know, just as a background for people who maybe aren't aware, if you look at something like um, attitudes towards interracial marriage, you know, since the 1960s, I think we've gone from like 80% disapproval to 93% approval of interracial mm-hmm. marriage. If you look at like um, the, the, the warmth that, you know, like how how white Americans perceive black Americans, whether they're, you know, they're antipathic to them or positive towards them or have good images. Like basically it's all going in a positive direction. Yeah. Right. There's lots of, there's lots of positive trajectories that we don't really hear about. And, Mm. and what, so, you know, sorry too many thoughts and I'm kind of just uh, getting trying to organize them here, but like you, you kept mentioning 2020, but for me, this goes back to like 2016. I mean, it goes back even further, but it was 2016 where I really see, I started to see that it go kind of crazy. And it started not with George Floyd, but with Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin was killed and, you know, Obama said that that could have been my son. Right. Mm-hmm. And his image was everywhere and people became hyper concerned about mm-hmm. the, the threat that, uh, young black men faced in America. Mm-hmm. And I had studied enough about, you know, the the rates of, of interracial crime and everything to know that that, that was not statistically correct, that, that there wasn't mm-hmm. a huge amount of murder of young black men by the police or by by um by uh by white men, right? The sure. the uh the interracial violence gap is the other direction. Um, and I wanted to express this after George Floyd was killed, mm-hmm. but I, 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 everyone was so angry. I just felt like yeah. it would just ignite rage to say it. Mm-hmm. Right. People want were rage. right, by the way, it would have <laughs> <laughs> people wouldn't, yeah. if you said, this is what the FBI said, they'd just tell you that the FBI is, is yeah. wrong. Right. And they, they, they're getting, they're seeing it, right. They're seeing the Trayvon Norton story. They're yeah. seeing, you know, they're seeing the George Floyd story. Everyone's seen the George Floyd story. Nobody's seen the Tony Tempo story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I felt like, like there's a, 
there's you know a specific young black man who's a who's a really prominent member of the parkour community and he writes a lot on his instagram about how he trains indoors almost exclusively mm. because he's worried that he'll get killed by the police if he goes and trains outside mm. and i think that this is really disempowering to young black men right and women right because he's spreading a paranoia that's not rooted in fact well, this is interesting, though, because as you were describing this, I I started thinking about um, uh, who's the f- famous writer. What do you write about? Who writes about enlightenment? Uh, Stephen Pinker. Yes. Okay. So this is a very Pinker-esque <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, formulation. It's mm-hmm. like. So much has gotten better, but I think what's actually happening is that even though materially things have gotten better, from a meaning perspective, things have gotten worse. Mm, Yes. And this is the central issue. And yeah, yeah, that that is the central issue. And there's something interesting to be said, you know, Christopher Lash wrote this incredible book called The True and Only Heaven, which I (laughs) highly recommend, where he talks about Dr. King and how in the beginning and the middle of Dr. King's, let's call it reign, uh, he was promoting a politics or rather a, 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 a spiritual discipline against the politics of resentment. Mm. Right. And at the heart of this, this spiritual discipline was able to create meaning and he was able to, to, to plant this seed or co-create this really with other black leaders in the South. And this is interesting though, because the South was obviously uh, rife with Jim Crow laws, Mm -hmm. right? The worst from a legislative perspective, the worst, you know, deeply enshrined uh, uh, prejudices, bigotries, you know, systemic racism and the true meaning of the word systemic, right? And simultaneously, though, there was meaning in these communities, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting, right? These communities had vibrant churches, you know, Black-owned businesses uh, that were able to create the sort of economic leverage yeah. to enable them to, bo- to boycott the Montgomery bus, you know, mm-hmm. in the first place, right? So you have this interesting dichotomy of incredible, incredible uh, persecution and a sense of existential meaning that cannot be measured by you know uh mat- merely material means right merely economic uh measurements man does not live by but alone someone said that i don't know um but then yeah. but then <laughs> right right dr king christopher lash points out tries to go to the north where the north. there isn't jim crow laws yeah. And certainly not in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. There isn't this sort of systemic legal disenfranchisement. Remember, you have a whole Black migration happening Mm -hmm. from the South to the North in search of economic opportunity. And yet, King finds that in the North, people are not simply not organizing to vote they don't even think that there's anything worth voting about, mm. right? And and actually Lash argues that instead of trying to promote integration in the North, King should have actually gone into the ghettos 
to create community. Mm. Those communities were already existing in the South, yeah. which created that that foundation from which political action could emerge. And so I think that that I think we're dealing with a similar issue here. It is the case that, you know, everything you pointed out is true. There's been movement in terms of interracial uh, progress. Mm-hmm. But I would guess that this is true for for all races, probably. I mean, I might be overstating that, but yeah. I would guess that this is true for many ethnic communities within America, that meaning has plummeted. Yeah. And that's yeah. the issue that we have to deal with. Yeah, so that, that was in my my little notes here on why race now? I have mm. ideology, like yeah. we talk about the impact of these specific ideologies like James Lindsay has, has documented and Christopher mm-hmm. Ruth. Um, I have grief, right? Like people, like I thought about this, like you don't get angry, you don't feel intense grief just like in a linear timeline. It's not like something bad happens. You feel really bad and then less bad over like a, a consistent yeah. time. It's like, it comes up in wells. It's like part of the reason that people are upset about rice now might just be that that's the random expression of when the grief happens and it mm-hmm. still hasn't been processed. It still hasn't been right. dealt. And then the last that's one. the outlet. Yeah. Yeah. And the last one is, is, uh, it's, it's, it's another species. It's another output of the meaning crisis. Mm. And I wanted to go, um, I wanted to touch on what you said earlier about how black Americans are treated as talismans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of my fr- uh, black friends in the parkour community, I had a conversation with him, um, sometime during COVID year. And, uh, he, we were, we were talking about the kind of takeover of the parkour community by like this really woke sort of mm. virtue signaling. And yeah. he was talking specifically about what, what had happened during, um, uh, after George Floyd was murdered. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. he, he, um, he's a gay black man who grew up in Atlanta, right. Um, mm-hmm. middle-class, um, he, so all of these white parkour athletes started calling him and asking him how he was doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, he, his first reaction was like, this is the story that I've been living with my whole life. Right. Like I've always been aware that the bad things can happen to black people for being black. Like, why are you calling me now? Yeah. Um, and then his second thing was they always, they didn't really want to talk to him about what was happening to them. <laughs> what he felt like eventually was that they wanted him to, to, to sort of shrive them of their sins for having been white when something mm. like this happened. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was thinking about, you know, when I was talking to him, I was thinking about, you know, white men getting down or white women getting down and washing the feet of black men on the street during, during the George Floyd protest. I remember this. Yeah. I yeah. forgot that that happened. Yeah. I remember <laughs> walking through Seattle and seeing shrines, right? Like mm. mirrors and, you know, dream catchers and, like art and images and you know martin luther king and malcolm x and even yeah. x kennedy's names put up like in strange mosaics on people's yards like i sent one of these to john revake and i was like this is an altar right yeah it's an altar <laughs> and so what i said to him was that i think that within wokeness mm-hmm. there is a there's a hunger for something religious and spiritual 
for sure. And that what has happened in some sense has been the replacement of the suffering of Jesus on the cross mm. as the kind of central narrative around which things are organized to the black experience of slavery as the central narrative of suffering, which organizes our spirituality. Mm. And, and what I was saying to him was that this actually puts black people in a really difficult position yeah, because they become the dispensators of of freedom from sin, right? You have mm -hmm. to check your privilege. Checking your privilege is confessing your sins. Mm -hmm. And there's a weird way in which it it's it becomes very self-serving, right? The black community becomes a talisman by which the white community can can express their sins. Yes. Yes. This is a very difficult puzzle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because it turns black people into saviors. It's sort of like the inversion of the white man's burden. Now it becomes the black man's burden to, yeah. you know, atone white people for their sins. Um, and then I think we would have to, 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 to solve for this, we might have to talk about, you know, I don't know how obscure you want to go, but like, <laughs> you know, Neoplatonist forms of Christianity versus, you know, other forms of Christianity that are certainly alive and well in our, in our, uh, in our unconscious psyches. You know, I don't know if you've read Dominion by Tom Holland. Have, yeah. Um, so you know how he, he talks about, and I think he said, I actually saw him in California a few months ago. He said that like Nietzsche predicted the, the, turning of the victim into an idol mm, as a yeah. byproduct of christian of christianity this mm -hmm. is a serious problem right this this creates serious issues because it enshrines victimhood as something to aspire towards it mm -hmm. also creates it lays the foundation for narcissistic personality disorder because yeah. your sense of self becomes that becomes dependent upon an external validator and then you just find yourself looking for an for an external validator right i think that you're seeing those elements also play itself out in wokeness which is so funny because woke woke is a euphemism for becoming enlightened right yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Awaken. you can see these you can see these historical you know uh, force is still very much alive today. <laughs> yeah, you, you can translate Buddha, right? It's like, are right. you a god? No. Are you a man? No. What are you? I'm woke, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's fascinating from an anthropological perspective, but it's very damaging, obviously, from a yeah. from an organizing perspective. So yeah, I think that, that that is a really important aspect to deal with. And I think like Jonathan Peugeot and his work and like conceptualizing some of this stuff is really valuable. I want to go back to this question, you know, so I'm, you know, the parkour community is really important to me and the movement community and, yeah. and like a lot of the woke religion has, it's been widely adopted within that community. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is literally hurting people, right? It is mm -hmm. like people are... You know, uh, I just finished uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. He was talking about how we create these cognitive distortions. And so if you believe that your 
far more likely to, like that thousands of young black men are getting killed every year by the police mm-hmm. and you're not going to go train outside because of that that's a disempowering belief that's that's yeah. a source of of mental anguish that you don't need in your life and i've thought often about like how can i have that conversation with somebody mm-hmm. like i have good news you don't actually have to be scared of that and yet i feel like that yeah. good news isn't going to be welcome and that there's well, something that i need to do there's something yeah. that I need to do that isn't about knowing the facts right. to That's be able to show say. up the right way for that. Like when I had that, I told you last time about the, my meditation in the woods and the fire that moves through the forest mm-hmm. as anger. And one of the things that I asked was like, so, so, I mean, I think it's like 20 to 40 unarmed black men are shot every year by the police. And it's a, about the same number of white men once you control for uh, I mean, that's a very small number among the, the murders in this country. It's like that's a that's an average weekend in Chicago. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's not one of the worst problems that we face. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it is disproportionate. More black men are shot by police than, than white men as a proportion of the population. But it, you once you control for the greater violence in the black community, all these other things, it doesn't look like that. If you look at like um, controlling for how many incidents there are, the likelihood of, of, of of fatal shooting is actually lower when it's a a black um, person, but there is the flip side of that. And this is all on Roland Fryer's work for anyone interested in it, which is that black men are still 50% more likely or black uh, Americans are 50% more likely to be harassed by the police in low level ways, Mm -hmm. low level violence. And most of my black friends in the parkour community have had weird and uncomfortable experiences with the police. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to say, okay, that's not true. But why why does it feel so true? Mm-hmm. And part of it is this thing. Part of it is how long has there not been an actual disproportion, right? How many people can, do you know in your family history, in your community who can talk about Right. those interactions with the police and and has that been processed has that been i mean it, it's like if you're in a relationship with somebody and it starts to get bad mm-hmm. and then it, you're you're trying to come back in a relationship it's like once you're treating each other well it it's not fixed right right <laughs> because there's this time where grounding yeah. there's to be a grounding pro- processing time yeah, yeah. Um, and if that's absent then and and it is absent. Uh if that's absent, then yeah, you know Vervegi's four ways of knowing. Like there's yeah. no there's no like propositional route you know, there. Like yeah, there's no propositional route there. There's only I mean only. I suspect there's only the consistent act of showing up in a way that is present in a way that is informed by all the training that you're doing. Yeah. Right. In the confidence, right. Which literally means like with faith in being <laughs> that such a thing will be able to produce a shift in your friend's relationship to reality. Just yeah. so hopeful and, uh, disappointing because it means like that you don't have the capacity to like you know superimpose a a, a shift in his understanding of reality it has to be co-created you know Mm -hmm. and so 
that's why all of this work is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's this, you know, the 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 call within the social justice space is for white people to be allies. Mm-hmm. And um, and the the way that they conceive of ally, I think, is is um, is deeply misleading, right? It, yeah. it, it's da- it's dangerous for both individuals, right? Because it's asking uh, the white person to give up their own moral agency within the situation. Right. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, it's empowering the the black participant in that conversation, or the you know whatever the the underprivileged minority is in the conversation, to mm-hmm. not be reflected back anything that's negative. Sure. Which is which is not a recipe for growing as a human being. Sure. Yeah. So it, there's a there's a there's a you know Jordan Peterson talks a lot about you want as a friend someone who's who won't give you alcohol if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what you need as a friend. When I when I had that that vision of the the fire in the forest, I thought to myself. I need friends who are willing to stand with me in the fire, right? Like we need to be in the process of burning off the deadwood of our character together. And that means that we have to be able to tell the truth to each other. Yeah. So, you know, I ha- I do have black friends who I tell the truth to. And then I, then th- but then there's like a point where with the community in general, it's like, I don't know how much I can speak the truth as I see it because, because, because it's going to ignite a fire that's damaging to people rather than one that actually uh, is healing. Mm. And mm. this is the, the, and this, and this is why I think I'm so intrigued by your work because I can go to Rufo. I can go to, 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 um, uh, to James Lindsay and go to other people and just get facts. Right. And I feel like Sam Harris and Steven Pinker and all these people, they've, they're laying out these really beautiful, rational, consistent, coherent arguments and they're landing flat. Mm-hmm. They're not penetrating, right? Yeah. The situation is getting worse despite the beauty of their argumentation mm-hmm. because they've not, they're not getting that, that it's not as simple as a misunderstanding of, of propositions. Right. And so this is why we need to talk about grief and we need to talk about the meaning crisis and we need to talk about spirituality which is yeah. a weird thing for me to say. I've always been a skeptic of spirituality, but that's something that is fascinating to me in this story. Like there's a, I guess there's two, it feels like there's kind of two narratives about the black community that uh, are competing. One is that everything that's wrong with black Americans is because of the sins of white Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and so white Americans just have to confess their sins, which is like, <laughs> Nothing gets better because of that, right? Like, like just like yeah. if you just you know if you're in a relationship with somebody, um, and you were just like, yeah, I cheated on you, yeah, I beat you up, yeah, I did, and you did that every day. I'm so sorry that yeah, I did yeah. these terrible things, <laughs> but you didn't you're like you didn't actually fix their car, or right. <laughs> like you, you know. It's, yeah, well, it's the it's the replace it's the continual. Uh, belief in propositions like that's that's what it is all the way down like if you were to you know have a a james Lindsay next to let's say an ibram kendi Mm -hmm. uh it's it's propositions all the way down (laughs) and 
yeah, it's it's interesting how the Cartesian mindset has has like really infected us all the way down. It, like we're all guilty of it. It's it's not like one side, so to speak, has the exclusive you know domain of this. But yeah, we gotta talk about spirituality. <laughs> so. I, you know that, and I think that Sam Harris actually—it's funny to me because I, I I talked to him about this briefly. Like he shows up very differently mm-hmm. on the like his waking up app, yeah. <laughs> the way he's shown up in conversations and in uh, when he was on Twitter. Like I find a lot of meaning and a lot of richness, and a lot of practical tools from his waking up app that he's not bringing onto his live conversation like when he was like going over the all these facts about you know policing and police brutality in 2020 there was none of the waking up sam harris mm. brought in it's a different mode that. yeah it's a different it's so it's integrated yeah so i want to just go back to this this idea though so you have the narrative that 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 it's just white people's fault and that somehow mm-hmm. If we just feel guilty enough, it'll fix the problem, <laughs> which is really absurd to me. And then the flip side is that, like, yeah, bad things happen to black people, but everybody's had to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. Black community just has to take responsibility, which is sort of the the, the right wing side. And then there's a then there's the like the extreme right wing side, which is like black people are just not able to pick themselves up. They do not yeah. they're additionally less capable than other people, mm-hmm. and like. Like listening to your work and then like listening to James Baldwin, I, I listened to that that uh, uh, the fire next time over the weekend. Mm-hmm. I just finished that this morning. Um, I was struck by and I read uh, Dr. King's book last year, the, the Strength of Love. I was struck by like the historical uniqueness and extraordinary mm-hmm. virtue of the civil rights movement. Right, like obviously there were flaws and there were people, but like. It's it's an extraordinary accomplishment, and, and on both sides, in a way, like I think that one thing that we really don't do in this country is have enough of a sense of history. Like mm-hmm. there aren't there aren't other there aren't other historical experiments where a former enslaved population and the former slave masters are actually trying to find equality and a positive relationship together. Like in most situations, the slaves were worked to death and didn't even yeah. populate each other. Um, and in, and and there was never there was never the attempt to let go of the idea of the supremacy of the mm-hmm. dominant group. Right? The Romans didn't let go of that. The Chinese didn't let go of that. Mm-hmm. The Ottomans didn't let go of that. It was just like that's that's the that's the bread root. It's it's so funny that people talk so much about being a white supremacist country. Mm. And whiteness is a weird historical construction. It's different than Ottomanness or Chineseness, but it's not that different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But, but there's there is something virtuous, and I think it is something that that, as Tom Holland would say, comes out of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And and part of it is happening with white Americans, and part of it is being deeply resisted by very pernicious things in white Americans, mm-hmm. and part of it is really coming from Black Americans like Dr. King and like James Baldwin. And, you know, as a, as a white American who, who's had, you know, like in some sense injured by the, by some of these, these ideologies, right. Cause it got into me early. Um, like listening to James Baldwin was hard. 
it was painful to listen to his resentment and his rage about what was happening in America in the 1960s. Um, but it was like, it was deeply informative in a really powerful way, right? Because it's just one of the man's perspective, but it's a deeply thought and felt and sensitive perspective that's being shared out there. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that one of the big problems with the current dialogue is it doesn't actually respect the accomplishment mm. of of black americans in general right there's so much story about black oppression and there's so little story about black achievement in america which is really like if you look at it from a global perspective like how many ethnicities mm-hmm. have as many widely admired figures have contributed as much to the culture of the world right now over the last yeah. 100 years than black americans and yet that part of the the story of the experience seems to be consistently forgotten and i think that it's mm-hmm. key to building the grounds for something else because like you said it's it's about falling in love mm-hmm. right rock and roll helps white america fall in love with black america mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i I think it's hard to take in the accomplishments of a people if your sense of self is dependent upon uh, emphasizing that people's degradation. I mean, we're we're back to the same problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I don't think the accomplishments or even the, you know, the moral fiber of the civil rights movement is taken in because I don't think it's known. Like I had a very unique educational upbringing. I've come to realize (laughs) like the schools that I went to in my elementary education were many of them were predominantly African-American and not just predominantly African-American but engaged with that tradition. Like Mm -hmm. that tradition was infused into the curriculum, right? Like I had to memorize speeches by Maya Angelou as a six-year-old. Like it was, it was, it was very much this kind of, um, you know, Booker T. Washington-esque train the mind, like, you know, school or schooling that I received. And that I've realized that that's just like not widespread in America at all. Um, so there's different pieces that need to be tackled. There's the piece of institutional learning and like, what is the purpose of an education? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's, there's the, you know, the birth of spirituality within secular America leads to these weird outcomes where because human beings are spiritual it's just a fact our our spirituality ends up getting discharged in these very weird ways um and so i don't even know that there's room for an appreciation of the accomplishments at the present moment if your sense of self is animated by these other anxieties um, and dependent upon them, right? Like Mm -hmm. if my, 
it's like the frame problem like for vicky talks mm -hmm. about like yeah. we're looking through a frame and in some ways you could say this is a very scary statement but in some ways you could say it hasn't become scarce enough for whoever we're talking about black and white america alike it hasn't become scarce enough for us to do this and look at the glasses we're still looking through the glasses with the muck and you know yeah yeah uh and it hasn't become blurry enough for us to realize that oh we need to like take them off and like wipe them and see what's up with with the construction with the way they've been constructed yeah there's a what struck me when you were saying that about the the frame is that in some sense like like black and white America can never have peace until we can retire the frame of the slaver and the enslaved, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is a difficult frame to retire. Mm. But this is a Christian problem. Yeah, tell me, <laughs> tell me more. I, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think ultimately this is a Christian issue. Uh, because I said this to someone, I said this on Twitter the other day. Oh, uh, I, I, I came across a piece that was about wokeness. It was like a Christian response to wokeness. And it was like, we need to sort of like highlight the, you know, the, the phrase that Paul says, you know, in Christianity, there's neither Gentile nor Jew. There was only. There's neither man nor woman. Yeah. Right. There's, yeah. And, and this is going to be the framework of the paradigm that successfully um dispenses with wokeness and my pushback to that was yes but christianity also produces this uh this upholding of the victim <laughs> yeah right? as the ideal thing to be and it seems to me that unless you deal with that directly and head on you're going to continue to have this problem. We need to make the shift from there's neither Gentile nor Jew to, and this this happened a little in the civil rights movement. Neither right? slave nor master. There's no, neither right. slave nor master. Right? Neither Gentile nor Jew, neither man nor woman, yeah. slave nor master. We're all one in the body of Christ. It's not exactly that, but that's very close mm. to what it says. So I think that the, there's neither slave nor master never hasn't been taken seriously enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I've been thinking frankly about... harder to actually internalize mm -hmm. and to embody. There's a I've been thinking about well, one thing I've been thinking about is that the the in a lot of ways the the progress of the civil rights movement was deeply religious, right? Like, yeah, King was a was a was a pastor, right? Yeah. Nation of Islam, good and bad, is you know is a religious movement. Um, and then there's a there's a kind of waning of religion over the last half of the 20th century, and there's an idea that that we're just progressing towards this sort of universal liberal utopia. Mm -hmm. And the way that like Pinker or Lindsay or some of these other people respond to the rise of wokeness is to entrench on secular humanism. Mm -hmm. But my sense is that 
there's a lot of important aspects of secular humanism that we need to try to retain, but there's a reason why it's not stable. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't, I don't like, I feel like the theory of the Lindsay Rufo types is that it's, it's just because bad people wrote bad ideology in, (laughs) in textbooks and colonized our universities. And I'm like, I, I don't think that, it would have worked if there wasn't a problem that it seemed like an apt solution to. Um, and so that, to me, that's like the, there has to be a, a new frame that transcends and includes yeah. that that says, okay, yes, the problem is still, you know, there, but we can look at it from another frame, right? We can step beyond that. Um, yeah. We can't I mean, like. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you first. We can't simply ignore the underlying spiritual aspects. We also can't ignore the reality of differences, mm-hmm. which is sort of the secular humanist approach. And then... What do you mean by that? So the idea is that we're supposed to be colorblind, right? Mm. That that was the secular humanist idea. Like, yeah. I want to move to a world in which your background and my background just are completely immaterial. But that's kind of absurd. In a, in a way, it's, it's like it's atomizing of the individual. Right in a deeply dehumanizing way. Like you are a black woman. I am a white man. Right. Um, and, and we come from specific backgrounds and that deeply informs uh, who we are in our experience. And if we can't, Mm. if we can't open that dimension, we can't actually meet each other as fully in reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So abstracting almost, I would, I'm being really tongue in cheek here, but it's very abstracting and also, colonizing Mm -hmm. in fact because it it disembodies the individual from her locale and from her lived experience as a way to take on the overcorrections of the woke (laughs) yeah yeah and yeah yeah i mean it wasn't originally conceived to be against the woke, right? It was conceived to be against mm-hmm. the race, uh, the Nazis, and uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and 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 other things. And now it's being repurposed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But these underlying spiritual dimensions are not there, and you know, as we talked about, there's this, there's the the sense that that there's a weird way in which wokeness makes Black Americans instrumental for White Americans as a way of shriving them of sins mm-hmm. and it, like the whole robin d'angelo thing it's so it's so dehumanizing in the relationship between two people <laughs> like like uh, there's my my friend uh um who i was talking telling you we were talking about um you know uh, uh his friend's response to george floyd right it's like when he comes to train with me and I, or we go to train together. Like, I don't want him to treat me as a white man specifically. And I don't want to treat him as a black man specifically. And I, I like, I don't want to treat him as a gay man specifically, right? Like the, there are, there are aspects of our relationship in which that's totally should be immaterial. Mm-hmm. And there, but then there's also the truth that like to understand him, to deeply empathize with him over time, I have to under, understand his experience specifically as a black man, specifically as a gay man. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he wants to empathize with me, he has to understand my experience on the other side of that. Um, so there's a, uh, there, we have to be able to treat people as humans first to, to uh, grab some of your language. 
but not to collapse them only to this individual layer, because that's not actually a real understanding of what a human is. Right. It's an illusion. And I think that a lot of this, a lot of our problems actually stem from our attempt to uh, seek that utopia that you that you described the secular humanists as wanting to do. And of course, Holland argues that secular humanism, of course, comes out of Christianity, right? As this kind of side wind, um, seeking the kingdom of God, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And this gets taken up in these different iterations, uh, one of which is secular humanism. The problem is that, and I've been grappling with this for a bit. The problem is that if you conceive of uh, of utopia as a kind of I'm writing an essay about this right now as a kind of eradicate total eradication of evil let's say mm-hmm. then you create something that is inherently contradictory you cannot completely eradicate evil and there are stories in our zeitgeist that show this for example like star wars with with anakin skywalker who tries to completely eradicate you know death you know, what he conceives of as evil. Um, you can't do that. What you end up doing is you end up eradicating yourself, right? And there's a whole thing in, you know, Jungian thought with regards to shadow work where you don't want to repress your uh, repressed, you know, or you don't want to repress your your, your aspects of yourself that you don't want. You taught me this, right? You don't want to... Uh, you don't if you want to be capable of nonviolence, you have to understand your violent capacities, mm-hmm. right? And get in right relationship with them. That is what it means to truly be nonviolent. Mm-hmm. You don't, that doesn't to truly be nonviolent doesn't mean you try to like suppress your violence because it will come out in unconscious ways. And I think that's what we're seeing with the secular humanist slash, I'll say slash woke. Yeah, worlds. They're like trying to get rid of darkness, and then their darkness ends up coming out in unconscious ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that one of the flaws of let's say certain strands of Christianity is this. It's and the Jungians have pointed this out, by the way. It's this attempt to completely eradicate darkness as a po- enlightenment, right? Blinding light, as opposed to getting in right relationship with darkness. There's a subtle distinction there. And that goes to like that interplay of light and dark that I talked about earlier when describing enchantment. And I think that that's what's going on with a lot of these political movements that are crashing into each other right now. Yeah, species of utopianism. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The desire to not make the world messy. Like, I think a lot about When I was listening to, uh, to, to uh, the fire next time uh he's talking about the the nation of islam's desire to uh to have specifically a black nation right and you know he was saying this is just it was really not well thought out from a logistical economic standpoint but he understood it and it even plays to what you're saying about king right like rather than just seeking integration there needed to be the bootstrapping up of the mm-hmm. the functions within the black community um and you know we have this whole dialogue that's so incoherent in america around gentrification versus white flight right so it's like when white people move into a space where there are 
uh, you know, underprivileged minorities were gentrifying. When we move out of a place where there's underprivileged minorities, it's white flight. So it's like white people just can't move. They have to stay where they are <laughs> or else they're yeah, sinners, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but like the reality is that that many people prefer some level of commonality and then there's good reasons why right like yeah. you know your work has been described as like diversity equity and inclusion training and i i've kind of just hate that whole term term right because i think that the idea that diversity is inherently a strength is miss is is a is a dogma that's not backed by reality mm. and the you idea from that, an evolutionary perspective i mean from a just a technical like just like from a sociological perspective right like okay. if you if you want to create a team of people to accomplish something do you want it to be maximally diverse or maximally homogenous i would say neither right mm -hmm. and it depends on the type of team that you're creating mm -hmm. right so the, the argentinian soccer team just won the world cup right argentinian soccer team is very white it was it was like a it was like a thing on social media like why are the Argentinians so white? Mm -hmm. You know, they don't. It doesn't matter that they're white. It matters that they have a strong sense of the Argentinian, right? Sure. Yeah. So if you have a team yeah. that where you have Black Americans and White Americans and they have a very strong racial antipathy to each other, that's not going to be a good team generally. Right. Right. Now, if you like, if you look at economic production and different types of functions, I think that what you'll see is that. Like cosmopolitan cities are really, really powerful for the production of certain things. Like art is really, really um, benefited by the meeting of cultural spaces. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that like there's also like function to having people who are relatively similar. So I think a country where you have some areas that are relatively homogenous and uh, some areas that are very cosmopolitan works better than just trying to force everything to be San Francisco. Sure. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and equally, it's going to be bad for you if you try to force everything to be Utah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need uh, people. Well, I'm when see see the problem or the challenge is when I hear diversity, that's what I hear. Yeah. Well, that that that's the funny thing is that diversity is conceived of in very weird ways, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, you know, I looked at the diversity ratings of the different schools around Seattle, right? Because mm -hmm. they had like a, it was it, basically like, they have like a just ranking of public schools in Seattle and my kids were gonna start going to school. And then they had, and one of the elements that they're ranked on is diversity. So I was just mm -hmm. curious, I was like, well, okay, what does that mean? And I saw that, uh, I think it was Garfield High School was ranked at like, the absolute best most diverse school mm -hmm. it's 94 percent black mm. <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's not, not di diversity that's not right diversity. Uh, it's 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 uh it's diversity is 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 percent non-white now right um, which is a problem when, when that is how diversity is being yeah is being and, defined yeah yeah so having diversity like and Nassim Taleb has talked a lot about like how like Germany was an extraordinarily productive economic area era mm -hmm. because they had um, very uh, diversified um, power structures, right? So each city could kind of determine its own policies and then they could compete with each other to see which worked. And because of that, it was very economically dynamic. So that was a layer of diversity. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, diversity, you, you have to be able to, to choose dimensions along which you want things to be less diverse and dimensions where you want diversity, right? So if you're, if you're an NBA team, you don't want necessarily a huge amount of height diversity. (laughs) You don't, or you want the least amount of diversity that you can around shot making ability. You just want it as high as possible and universal across the team. But then you do want diversity in like certain roles that people play. They can't all play the same role. Um, so that's why I, like I, I struggle with that term. And then inclusion, it's the same thing. If we if you if you take any category and you include everything in that category, eventually the category doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> like you can you have to have diversity and unity or diver, like complexification. Right. John Ravik talks about complexification. That's the the diversification of something or and then it's unification, right? So you have to have these two things in balance. You have to have capacity to include and see inclusion and the capacity to exclude, right? You can't live in one this experience, right? It's a great thing to be able to access. But you can't walk around and live the world in the world that way. Um, and then, you know, equity is, uh, I think, a very dangerous idea. <laughs> but... Yeah. Uh, there's this book called Seem Like a State by James yes. Scott. Mm-hmm. This book? I'm reading yeah. it right now. It's very good. It speaks to a lot of these issues. Yeah, I want to read that book. I haven't read that book, but I'm curious why, what comes up for you around the ideas within that book in reference to what I was just saying? Um, well, basically a state, mm-hmm. much like the those who seek the kingdom of God, let's say. A state in our postmodern, whatever you want to call it, era, uh, often finds itself being carried away by an impulse mm-hmm. to superimpose utopia yep. onto what it perceives as a mishmash of messiness. Yep. So, so, like, the people who constructed Brasilia, for example, mm-hmm. when they were building uh architecturally they had this like this like philosophical belief in utopia and utopia looked like a very specific thing in terms of architectural design just like straight lines want to get rid of the messiness of the streets uh you know but when in fact there is an order to the streets the state just can't detect it (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and so you can see this i think when the state tries to, well, you know, race is a construct, and so the state tries to superimpose its perception of what racial equity looks like, but doesn't realize that. Like, oh, I, I read, I wrote this recently in an essay that should be coming out soon about this is my beef. This is my real beef with Kendi, right? Yeah. Kendi makes these sweeping statements about like equity, mm-hmm. right? And you know that difference in outcomes is proof of difference of of uh, of well, it's proof of racism, really. Yeah. And well, but it's yeah. like, not just racism, but sexism, yeah, transgenderism. Yeah, but like, yeah, specifically speaking about how to be an anti-racist, yeah. this text, right? But mm-hmm. it's like, no, the black community in Atlanta is actually different from the black community in New Orleans, and the black community in New Orleans is actually different from the black community in Chicago, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. 
And to actually superimpose this like sweeping, totalizing vision onto quote unquote Black America is deeply colonizing. I'm going to reintroduce this yeah. <laughs> this word yeah. in our in our in our lexicon because it doesn't take into consideration that these communities have a very specific richness, a, a richness that is specific to the locale in which they emerge, right? Mm -hmm. Specific to mm -hmm. the environment in which they emerge. And Orleans is not Atlanta, and Atlanta is not Chicago, and Chicago yeah. is not Brooklyn, yeah. right? And if you are not, if, if you're a policymaker, and your approach is not to co-create with mm -hmm. the already existing environment or community in a specific environment, but instead to superimpose a sweeping vision, which is what states do, and how to see like a state, yeah. right, to superimpose a sweeping vision that has no awareness of that complexity, that complexification, uh, it's actually deeply tyrannical. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I haven't read the book. I read Slate Star Codex's review of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and he talked about like, you know, you're trying... I'll give you an example. Um, in Ireland, all the trees were basically destroyed to create English navies and then to grow sheep, right? They were overgrazed. So Ireland should be filled with Atlantic broadleaf rainforest, and it's yeah. not. So we should have trees, right? Well, they planted trees from where I am in the Pacific Northwest. They planted mm. Douglas fir trees in straight lines only dug fir trees. They're tree plantations. So you can, you know, <laughs> drive through the backlands of Ireland and see yeah. flat traditional Irish moors. And then there'll be a perfectly square 50 acres of Douglas fir trees. And, you know, maybe that's better than just flat moorland, but it's incredibly not diverse. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't support the local wildlife and it doesn't even support the traditional lifestyles that people had there right if you look at a forest that would have been that that was um, maintained in relationship to a more traditional lifestyle say italy right mm -hmm. it's like you're going out and you're pollarding the trees in order to harvest certain things you need to make sure there's enough tree cover enough uh you you make sure there's enough oak trees in the forest because you're going to harvest the pigs that the the boar right it's a big part of your local culinary tradition is is harvesting the boars in the fall and yeah. like, there's all these little there's these layers of complexity in how we interact and uh, this is another point that Taleb makes which is that those we we often try to hyper rationally create systems right if you want to maximize tax taxable income out of a plot of land. At some point, you think it makes sense to just have as many dug fir trees on that land as possible. But there's all these externalities that you don't see when you're a state because mm -hmm. it's not just the taxes, right? right. And, and this is why, um, yeah, um, this is, sorry, this is going to take us into a, a realm that's going to be really, really hard to try and get get around through because it gets so complex because this is part of the critique of the capitalist system and the atomization yeah. and the weird way in which um, the, 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 the conversation about race is actually in some strange way related to the desire of 
the the sort of economic system, the machine, to actually yeah. homogenize people. Yes, yes, and corporatize. Right? Yes, yes, because um, the, the the way that I think about it is that are you familiar with the paperclip problem in AI? No. Okay, so the paperclip problem is basically this idea that if you had a artificial general intelligence that became su- sufficiently uh, powerful to start scaling up its own intelligence, mm-hmm. and it had been designed to optimize the function of paperclip factories, if its central prerogative was more paperclips, it would literally consume the world to create more paperclips. Yeah. And so in the AI space, everyone is worried about AI alignment and how, you know, how we get these powerful, these powerful intelligent machines to essentially work well with human well-being. Well, I had this sense some time ago that actually we already exist within the paperclip problem because capitalism is essentially a type of collective intelligence. It's an artificial intelligence that we've created that optimizes for the production of things that are recognizable as capital. And so everything that, everything that, that, that contributes to the uh, the production of capital, the system wants to be as fungible as possible. It wants to be able to move those parts around and exchange them at clear rates in the easiest way possible. The problem with that is that human beings are the biggest producer of capital, right? Sure. But something like the breakdown of the family makes sense from capital's perspective because if you have the best comparative advantage available to you living in Washington, D.C., and your romantic partner has his best uh, comparative advantage in L.A., capital is going to be optimized by separating you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when I see all this dialogue about how we have to get rid of the nuclear family Mm -hmm. and about how your friends are your family, what I think is that actually whatever else is behind it, it's getting picked up and propagated in part because it makes human beings more fungible. So I followed it until the last part because I followed everything you were saying until the last part because I could easily see the last part becoming something, going in a different direction. Okay. It's not inevitable. I could see actually the critique of the nuclear family resting in this very historical source, which is to say that like the industrial revolution created the nuclear family uh or was a primary creator of it and in fact you know camille Paglia makes this argument that like prior to the industrial revolution we had extended families yeah right? which is not the same thing as like your friends should be your family which i they should be but not exclusively like mm-hmm. the argument could be made the argument against the nuclear family could also be a critique of capitalism right which is to say that like we we were formed in tribes where you know it wasn't just our mother and our father it was our aunts and our grandparents and you know we were we used to live closer to each other uh you know italian families historically you know were like more way more extended families but but overall i think that there is a co-opting of the language of decolonization mm-hmm. and i've actually been deeply uh impacted by the work of jordan hall on this okay. when, I, when i see yeah. jordan hall in conversation with Raviki, i started 
like when he talks talks about localization and the importance yes. of like mm-hmm. you know being embedded in that local community yes um and how and how capitalism and market forces create this illusion within us or create or creates this motivation within us to confuse having connections this is what Ravigi says having connections for being connected mm. right and so like if i can create a product mm. that has like millions of people yeah. you know yeah. buying it then somehow my my meaning is also super high but it's actually not and in fact it's inversely correlated the likelihood uh is inversely correlated so you see this corporatized corporatization happening or be coming up within identity politics right where where you know equity presupposes the perception that one black america in this locale is the same as another black america in another locale and it's like oh let's just again superimpose a policy from above when that's like fundamentally dehumanizing and the same processes of colonization that we've been weirdly fighting against in rhetoric on the left, right? Yeah. But not deeply fighting in any real meaningful way. I would have never, by the way, predicted that I would be the person making this document <laughs> like 10 years ago, but here I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think you're. I think you point to something very true, which is that part of the critique of the nuclear family is uh, is actually a desire to re-embed in deeper community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that the nuclear family is a little bit older than the Industrial Revolution. I think it comes out of the manorial system in uh, early feudal France, but that's a okay. slightly different <laughs> conversation. But it's, it's kind of sure. specific to western uh northwestern europe and then kind of spreads from there but the the interesting aspect of it is that the reality is what is replacing the nuclear family is not the extended family right what's replacing the nuclear family is um nothing <laughs> yes right what's re- replacing <laughs> yeah. the nuclear family is netflix and pornography mm. and halo um mm. and so yeah. so so you could say that the critique has merit mm-hmm. because it's pointing to something real, which is that this is maybe a very specific cultural artifact of mm-hmm. Northern Europe that maybe doesn't fit every situation that well. Sure. And that there are, that that actually what we really need is, is not, <laughs> you know, it's not just to go back to the 1950s and have everybody just sort of in there like perfect nuclear families. We right. need to actually have a deeper and wider conception of how we cultivate community yes i think that is the ultimate answer yeah if not all of our problems most of our problems i i think it is too like i think like i i always feel strange when i give my critique of capitalism because i think that i end up sounding like a communist or or a socialist which i'm definitely not i actually like really believe in like the market i just believe that that you know, Adam Smith said it doesn't work unless you have virtuous people. Right. <laughs> and it itself is not a generator of, of personal virtue. And right. so I think that we need to recognize that a well-aligned market system is only one of the functions, or one of the central institutions of a functional society. And that we have 
uh, sacrificed really everything else to the god of capitalism right now. Um, and we need to we need to we need to uh, to 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 remember what the church was and what its functions were, what family and community were, what you know um, de Tocqueville's idea of Americans and all of the ways that they they got together in these non-family, um, non-religious uh, institutions as well, right? Yeah. Uh, those organizations and that community is 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 what we need. And yeah, and we need to do that in a way that respects locality and specificity, mm-hmm. but helps us bridge gaps. Mm-hmm. Right? We have to... We have to be able to love and appreciate people who are different from us mm-hmm. and what they contribute to our society. Um, and our current dialogue seems like it's designed to do the opposite. Yeah. Um, I, I think that we're, well, we're, we're well over the period of time that I asked of your time. <laughs> so... <laughs> I really enjoyed this. Uh, this was Me a wonderful too. conversation. And yeah, it feels like there's a lot of unfinished lines, but maybe we'll, mm. another time, maybe we can, uh, maybe you, me, and John can have a conversation. We can continue some of these themes. Um, That'd be so cool. I would love that. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, once again, I really want people to look into your work. I want people who are listening to this to, to recognize that they're, there are ways to seek justice. There are ways to seek reconciliation and love that don't fall under the traps that of of uh, of talismanizing the Black American or of scapegoating White Americans. We didn't talk about the scapegoat mechanism and Rene Girard, but it's another important element of this conversation. Sure. And, yeah. and I hope this conversation was a was an exemplification of that. And I thank you for joining me in. My pleasure. Thank you, Chloe.